Uh, Well, at the very end of the book of John, in John chapter 20, uh, John will uh, write these words. Uh, He writes them. Jesus performed many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. Uh, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, And so that's, John writes this at the very end. He's giving the purpose for reason uh, for why he chose to write what he wrote. Uh, And in particular, he's talking about signs. And signs is just one of those fancy terms uh, for miracles. And John says, hey, uh, I wrote all the miracles that you need to know that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And John, being a good Jew, wrote seven of them. Uh, He wrote about seven different miracles. And so uh, what we're going to do in our new series is we're going to look at these miracles uh, one at a time. And so for the next seven to eight weeks, uh, we will be looking uh, at what John writes about. Uh, Because if he wrote them for the purpose that we may believe, then this should strengthen our own beliefs uh, as well. Uh, So today we're going to look at the first one. It comes in John chapter 2. Uh, So if you have your Bible, feel free to uh, open them up. Uh, And yes, uh, if we can get some lights up so that we can read them as we're doing it. That way you guys don't have to squint. There we go. Uh, So in John chapter 2, we're going to read that first miracle. And and as you're turning there, I just want to kind of uh, give a little background into John. Uh, Since we're going to be spending two months in John, I figured we probably should know uh, a little bit about this guy. Uh, John is the uh, fourth gospel or fourth story of Jesus uh, that we find in the New Testament. Uh, And if you were to read the four gospel stories, you would see that John is way different than everybody else. it, It doesn't take you very long to realize, wow, he doesn't say anything that the other guys are saying. Uh, In fact, if you take uh, the last week of Jesus' life from the triumphal entry until uh, his resurrection, and you just cut that out, all right, and you look at all the Gospels and what they say before that, John only shares one other story uh, that is in any of the other Gospels. All right, so one story out of the entire book of John up to the triumphal entry is shared with everybody else. Uh, and that's kind of strange because uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're sharing stories left and right. You f- can find a story in Matthew, and more than likely, you're going to have it somewhere else. All right, and so John, it's just different. It's all original. And so the question is, of course, why is it so different? Uh, even the style in which he's writing seems a lot different. And so I want to kind of give you two reasons. Uh, One, uh, they both deal with time and the time frame in which John is writing. Uh, The first one is uh, John is writing about uh, the year 90 to 100 A.D., Right, and so uh, this is pretty significant because when you look at Matthew, uh, we see that Matthew was written about A.D. 45. All right, so that's, we're talking 45 years between Matthew and John being written. All right, uh, Luke, uh, it's written probably about 10 years after Matthew, somewhere around 60 A.D., uh, 55 to 60 A.D. Uh, and then uh, Mark is just sometime uh, five years after that. Uh, so uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're written really close to each other. And this is pretty significant because uh, in that society, it took a while for things to get around. All right? in, our, in our world, uh, pretty much everything that we write is almost instantly digitized, all right? if it wasn't created in digital format to begin with. Right, my sermons that I write, it's automatically digital because it's on my computer. I don't handwrite anything. 
How many of you can write stuff still? All right, just, wow, a lot more than I thought. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, for them, they didn't have computers, and it took a while for things to get around. And so they hand-wrote everything, and material was expensive. All right? To have paper to write on, that was a lot of money. All right? For us, we can go down to Walmart, and we can get a, a package of 500 pieces of paper for less than $5 all right? easily. All right? And so uh, paper is pretty inexpensive for us. Pens are inexpensive. Pencils are inexpensive. But for them, it was very expensive. So they had to make sure that what they were going to write was worth writing. Right, and so Matthew, when he writes it, uh, if he wants other people kn- to know about what he's written, besides uh, the people that he's giving it to, they had to copy it. And they had to hand copy it. Okay, And that, that was going to take some time. And so for uh, Luke writing just 10 years after Matthew, it's very possible that he never read Matthew when he wrote Luke. Right, it's very possible that that could have happened. Mark may never have seen Ma- Matthew or Luke when he wrote Mark. And so they're telling stories that the apostles have told them. They're telling stories that are heard in the, in the, in the uh, churches every Sunday morning from the preachers. Right? And they're telling these stories that are essential for us to know. But John, being 45 years or more after those books were written, he had the, probably the opportunity to at least see one of them, if not all of them. And so he's able to write uh, a gospel that is very different from every other one because he's writing stories that he thinks is essential for people to know that they haven't already read about. Right, and so that's, that's important. That's part of the reason why it's different. Another part, uh, again, dealing with the time that he's living in, culture has changed vastly for him. All right, we we look at our world and our society, and we know that culture changes. Culture changes rapidly. Uh, six months ago, it was cool to do this one thing, and now you look like a fool. You just didn't realize you looked like a fool six months ago, but, but now it's just not considered cool in society. For them, it didn't drastically change like that, but it changed. And 40 years of cultural change causes Matt, John's book to be very different from the other three. Uh, imagine trying to do something now that you thought was cool 40 years ago. All right, just picture that for a second. For those that are over 40, I guess I should say that. Sorry, I'm not there yet. Uh, oh man, I'm just, I'll dig a hole. Okay, hold on a second. I'll dig myself out of this hole here in a second. So, anyway, uh, so culture has changed. So, John is writing to a church that is very different. All right, John's church was very much Greek. Uh, Matthew, he writes, and he's writing to a Jewish church. And you can tell when you read Matthew all these Jewish elements in it. All right, but John has, has some of it because it's a Jewish world that Jesus lives in. But Ju- John is going to explain them to us. All right, and we'll see that even in today's uh, passage that we're reading. All right, and so, John, there's a lot of reasons why John is different. And those are just some of them, and, and it mainly deals with when he is writing and why he is writing it. Uh, and so, uh, with that understanding, let us dive into this uh, winemaker story. It starts like this in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Uh, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 
And I want to stop there because this is kind of our scene setter, right? Uh, this is uh, the third day, we're told, uh, and we have to ask the question, what are we talking about when we say third day? Uh, not the band. All right, and, and the third day uh, could be, some people got that. All right, third day uh, could just be the, the, the time frame we're talking about, okay? Uh, so for us, we have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We have names to our days. For them, they didn't necessarily have that. All right, so the third day, we could be talking about Tuesday, Sunday being the first uh, Monday being the second, Tuesday being the third day. And so maybe it's talking about it's the third day of the week, it's a Tuesday, uh, and this is what we're going about. Or it could be uh, a reference to what's happened in John chapter 1. Uh, maybe it's a continuation uh, of that story, and that story is pretty state straightforward. The, there's a, it starts off talking about how John the Baptist uh, is talking about the Messiah. He's talking about his baptism and everything that happened about that. And John's saying, I'm not the Messiah. This other guy's the Messiah. Then the next day we're told that Jesus walks by and John the Baptist says, look, it's the Lamb of God. This is the guy I was talking about yesterday. All right, for those that had forgotten about it. All right, the, the third day comes by and Jesus walks by again. And again, John says, look, it's the Lamb of God. And this time, two of John's disciples finally get it and start to follow Jesus. And they go after him and they start to be his disciples. Uh, one of them was by a guy by the name of Andrew. And Andrew went and got his brother named Peter uh, to come and, and join him. Uh, the next day, we see that uh, Jesus goes and gets two more disciples, and so he's up to five disciples. And so maybe this is the third day since Jesus started having disciples. All right, and on the third day uh, of these people following him, they join in a wedding. All right, so he hasn't had disciples for, for very long, 48 hours, and he's bringing them to this wedding. All right, and, and, and we see that, that this wedding uh, is going to have an issue, and the issue is they run out of wine. Uh, this, this wedding took place in Cana. Uh, Cana is a very small town, okay? Uh, think Thompson, but smaller, all right? And, and you could see this town from Nazareth. So Jesus, uh, every day that he got up, he could look out across the way and he could see Cana down the road, all right? But it was a very small town. And so the possibility is that Jesus is going to this wedding because he knows the people. It may even be a relative, a cousin, a sister, somebody that Jesus knows is getting married, and that's why he's been invited to this wedding. All right? and, and these weddings in Jewish culture were very important. Right? Our culture, we spend thousands of dollars on weddings. It's crazy. Uh, the average, I think, is like 6000 or or more uh, on a wedding. That's a lot of money for one day. Right? And the Jewish culture was very similar. Right? They spent a lot of money. It was a big deal. Right, they invited everybody. Uh, the wedding usually started with a feast, so the reception was before, not after the ceremony. Right, and so after the feast, uh, the newlyweds would go and do the, the ceremony, so they would become newlyweds. Uh, and then they would parade them through town. And the wedding party would have lamps because it would be dark by then. And they would walk around town, and they would hold this canopy above the wedding people's heads, the newlyweds' heads. And they would travel not a straight path to the house, but all around town, as many streets as they they could possibly hit because everyone would come out and say, congratulations, we're so happy, even if they didn't know them. All right. And they would finally end up at uh, this house that they're going to be staying in. Uh, and, and unlike honeymoons, uh, the Jewish culture there, when they got to that house, they stayed there for a week at their house. 
How fun would that be? And uh, the people would come to the house, and they would treat them as a king and queen. And they would literally call them your majesties, and they would hold court. And so the morning after the wedding, they have all these people coming into their houses. How many of you, that's, there's a reason why we have honeymoons now, right? We to get away from all that. All right, but for them, that's what they did. And for a society that was very, very poor, and not a lot of them were high-end people, this was probably the best times of their lives, some of the happiest memories that they have, being treated like a king would be treated. And so weddings were big deals. And the essential to the wedding was the feasts at the beginning of it all. And any Jewish feast that was good had wine. Right? And everyone drank it. And it was a part of the deal. Everyone was partying. Right? It wasn't that they were getting drunk because drunkenness in Jewish society was very bad and shameful. So it's not that. Right? But they were drinking it. And, and we see that they've suddenly ran out of wine. And that's a bad thing. It was shameful. Uh, for the groom, for this to happen. It would have been a bad omen for the wedding itself. Right? So, so it's not a good thing uh, that this had happened, but it does appear to be possibly Jesus' fault. Right? He just gained five disciples two days before the wedding, and he's brought these five guys to the wedding. Right? Normally, if you get invited to a wedding, you get a plus one, right? right? Jesus didn't do just plus one, he did plus five. Okay? And so... Uh, Probably the reason why Mary's even coming to Jesus is because it's Jesus' fault, sort of. It's not like he did something bad, don't think of it like that, all right, but he's brought these extra people. And, and, and as many of you know, when you're planning a wedding and you're planning to have large amounts of people, you want to make sure you have at least a general idea of who's coming so that you know how much food to provide. Because even if a few extra come that weren't intended for, it can cause havoc, do you have enough seats for them? Do you have enough food for them? Do you have enough to drink for them? And in this particular case, the answer was no, they didn't have enough to drink. And so Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, we have a problem. They've ran out of wine. And she's not necessarily pointing a finger at Jesus, but she's saying, hey, your five friends here, they've had a little bit more than what we were expecting. And so Jesus responds to her, and he responds this way in verse 4. He says, woman, why do you involve me? And that sounds so bad, doesn't it? I mean, when, even in the tone I said it, right? But that's how I read it every time. I, I remember in class getting this passage, and I said, Woman, why do you involve me? And every, everyone looked at me weird. Uh, but it sounds bad to our 21st century ears, but we have to think about it in the first century, okay? Uh, for us, when we hear that phrase, woman, uh, we often think of that womanizer man that has a significant other that's sitting in, on the couch demanding a sandwich and a drink from her, right? That's what's in our mind when we, it's, oh, that's why you're laughing, right? It's what's in your mind. But for them, that's not what was happening, okay? Woman was an honorific term, all right? Uh, Caesar Augustus. Uh, will uh, approach Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen, and he'll call her woman. Uh, there's a, a book by Homer called The Iliad and the Odyssey, and in it, it tells the story of a guy by the name of Odysseus. And Odysseus has a wife by the name of Penelope, and, and he loves her. He goes to the ends of the world to get back to her, and in the entire book, he's calling her woman. All right, so it's not a negative thing. Jesus is not being unkind to his mother. All right? He is giving her an honorific title, woman. 
And then we get to this uh, phrase, why do you involve me? And that's a very bad translation. All right, the, 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 literally, the, it's a bad translation because it's trying to translate a phrase, okay? And translating a phrase from one language to the other doesn't always uh, go over very well. Uh, there, we were talking about this in Sunday school class. I had a, a, a teacher in 10th grade, uh, and she uh, was an English teacher, and she was telling us about the 70s. All right, so you can just imagine. And in the 70s, they had a uh, foreign exchange student come over and live with them. Uh, and, and while they were doing that, uh, the foreign exchange student came to them and was like, I don't understand what's going on. And she said, why? What's wrong? He said, well, all the students are talking about getting stoned. All right, and, and why would they want to do that? All right, and, and in the 70s, you know, you know what that meant, okay? But for them, the translation wasn't happening in their head because getting stoned to them was large rocks being thrown at them. All right, and so they were very confused why people would want to do this. All right, and so that's, that's kind of that idiom changes from language to language. It's not always good uh, translation. This is a bad translation. The literal translation of this is, what do I have to do with you? which doesn't sound any better, right? Woman, what do I have to do with you? All right, and, and, and if it's spoken in anger, yes, it means what it sounds like. Don't bother me, all right? But if it's spoken in gentleness, it just simply means don't worry. Why are you worrying? Why is this bothering you? And he's saying, mother, mom, why are you worried about this? He's kind of looking at her and saying, I got this. Don't worry about it. And so she takes him and, and she goes to, in verse 5, to, to the servants, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you to do. All right, and nearby stood six stone jars, which uh, the kind were used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding about 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jar with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And Mary, it seems, has some uh, position at this wedding, okay, enough that she can go talk to the servants and tell them what to do. And they're not thinking to themselves, why are you talking to us? All right, so she, maybe she, uh, maybe it's, again, a cousin, maybe it's a daughter uh, of Mary that, that's being married off, uh, and she's taking care of the wedding plans. All right, and she, she is in there, and she takes Jesus, and she doesn't necessarily know what Jesus is going to do. She just knows Jesus is going to do it. All right, he's going to take care of it. Why does she have this confidence in Jesus? And some of it, I think, is because she spent 30 years with Jesus, and there may have been times in her lives where it looked like it was in dire situation, and yet Jesus came through and fixed it. Maybe through a miracle, maybe not. You know, and she has confidence that Jesus is able to fix this problem. And Jesus does. He, he looks at his surroundings and he sees that there's these water jugs, the, the ones that are holding lots of waters, 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, this is where uh, John's writing to a Greek audience kind of explains things, right? 20 gallons, they, it's a lot of water, right? Per jug, all right? And there's six of them. All right, and he has to explain why, this, why there's six large jugs of water in this house. It's for the Jewish ceremonial cleanliness process. All right, that's a lot of water, if you think about it. 180 gallons of water uh, in these jugs. And when you look at the Jewish world, you saw, see why they had to do this. Uh, they used a lot of water in these ceremonial cleansing processes. Right? They did it primarily in two ways. One, uh, the, anytime they entered into a house, they would wash their feet. 
All right, we, we go up to NYR uh, every once in a while as a youth. I almost said every year, it's not true anymore, but every once in a while we go up there. Uh, and one of the things that I almost instantly notice once we get close to being on the mountain uh, is that my throat gets this sensation of like dryness, but it's a type of dryness that just drinking one glass of water doesn't fix. It's like, it takes like a whole day for me to uh, constantly drinking to finally uh, get that, that feeling sensation. I don't even know how to explain it. Uh, you have to be there. And the reason why that happens is because the air up there is extremely dry. And if it's a year that it hasn't rained a lot uh, and people are walking uh, and, and riding in their ATVs, the dust just starts to go. And you kind of picture a uh, pig pen from peanuts uh, as people are walking down the road at NYR. All right, that encourages you. You all want to go now, right? All right. That's what, that's what it feels like. And, and sometimes we have to throw water out onto the street just to keep the dust down from being in everything. And that's why I kind of picture here is in Palestine, it's very dry. And as people are walking, they're stirring up the dust and they're not wearing cool shoes that are closed. All right, they're wearing sandals and their feet get grimy. And just imagine if it's raining and their feet get muddy. And so as they're entering into the house, they have to wash their feet, not only to get the grime off, but to cleanse them from anything that may have been unclean along the road. And so that takes some water. Every time they leave and come back in, wash your feet, all right? Don't like your kids, wash your hands, all that stuff. But not only did they wash their feet, but they also did a whole process on cleansing their hands before meals. All right, for us, we go and we take soap and water and we're done, 30 seconds, Easy as peasy, right? But for them, they would take a jug of water and they would pour it down the back of their hand from their fingertips until their wrists. And then they would turn their hand upside down and pour more water from their wrists and let it drip off their fingertips. And they would do that for one hand and then the next, all right? And then they would take their hand and make a fist and they would cleanse their palm by rubbing their fists into their palms. And they would do that before every meal. And if they were a good Jew like this family was, uh, they were uh, doing it before every course of a meal, just to be clean. That's why they had to have all that water. They were going through it. And then Jesus sees this and he says, hey, let's just fill these things up. And he fills them up to the brim to make sure that there's nothing else in there. It's only water. And he tells them, take it to the master of the banquet, the guy that tastes the food and make sure that it's not spoiled or run or anything like that. And when they do that, uh, this is what happens in verse 9. It says, The master of the banquet tasted the water which had been turned into the wine. He did not realize where it had come from, uh, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And the master of the banquet, he drinks this water that's been turned into wine and he's amazed. Because it's not just good wine, it's the best wine. And so he calls over the groom, and he gives the groom a pat on the back. He says, great job. This is, this is abnormal. Normally people give the good wine first because they're trying to make an impression. And then once people have drinking some and their palates are dulled and they don't really, can't really tell the difference between good wine and bad wine, that's when they bring out the bad wine just to get through the ceremony. But you, good sir, you have done what no one else does. You have brought out the best last. And then John closes with this in verse 11. He says, Jesus, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there a few days. So he kind of closes, uh, again, with this purpose that he wrote way back, or way in John chapter 20, when he says, I'm writing these signs as a sign to you to let you know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the God. And here he says the reason why Jesus does this first miracle is to reveal his glory. So how does John chapter 2 reveal the glory of Jesus? I think we can look at it from a couple of different ways. The first is from the Jewish mindset. Jesus is a Jew. John is a Jew. He's writing about things that are happening in Jewish ways. And the first thing we see are these six water pots that appear in this story. There's six of them. For a Jew, the, the perfect number wasn't six, it was seven. And so six being one short of that perfect number was a number of imperfection. And yet Jesus looks around and it's these six imperfect jugs that he decides to use for his glory. And these jugs represented uh, everything that was wrong with the law of Moses. This constant need for them to constantly wash their hands and wash their feet, to be clean in order to be able to approach God. That's what these were used for. And it's in these things that Jesus takes water that's ordinary and makes it extraordinary in wine. He transforms them. And not just any wine, the best wine. And he does it in abundance. I mean, these things hold anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. A bottle of wine, I had to look this up, a bottle of wine is about a fifth of a gallon. And so we're talking from 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Way more than what's ever necessary for any occasion that you go to. Any way more for them than what they would ever go to. And yet this is how much Jesus uh, did. And what we see in this is that it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter uh, what sin you have. It doesn't matter what struggles you're facing. The grace that we find in Jesus is more than enough to handle whatever you're going through. And that's why he's trying to get across to the Jews at least. To the Greeks, it's a little bit different. The Greeks had stories very similar to this. They had a god of wine by the name of Dionysus. And then there was a town by the name of Elis that that had a temple to Dionysus. And every year at a feast of Thyia, however you want to say that, it would happen every year. And at this feast, it was dedicated straight towards Dionysus. And they would take uh, kettles from the temple of Dionysus to this house that was outside of town. And they would have a huge parade and they would set it inside this house empty. And they would close the doors and then the priest of Dionysus would put their seal on it and anybody from anywhere that happened to be at that parade could put their own seals on this door saying that's sealed and the only way to get in is to break these seals. And so they would wait and overnight uh, after in the morning they would open up and inside these kettles were wine that they said Dionysus gave them. And John is is recounting the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And he's saying, you guys have stories just like this. You have stories that you wished your gods could actually do. And you know that they don't actually do it. But Jesus, he really and truly came to do what you would only hope your gods could do. So to the Jew, he's saying the imperfection of the law 
shows the perfection of the grace that we find in Jesus. And to the Greeks, he's saying, your gods can only do this in your dreams, but Jesus can do it in real life. And for us today, 2,000 years set aside from John's story, we learn this, that the story that Jesus does here, the turning of water into wine, it is not just something he did once in a long-forgotten town in Galilee. It is a story of something that he is doing always, When we accept Jesus, when we allow Jesus to come into our lives, he transforms us. He makes us into new people. He gives us new life, like turning water into wine. Without Jesus, life is dull and tasteless. But with Jesus, it is bubbly and it is the best possible life. And the only way that we can have true life that is transformed, that is beautiful, that is above and beyond what we could possibly think of is in Jesus, in Jesus alone. If you have that life, you should be living it to the extreme. You have something that people are dying for. Do you live that way? You have somebody that wants to take you and take your ordinary life and make it extraordinary. And Jesus does that as the winemaker. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the miracles that Jesus performed. And uh, we see that John wrote the ones that he decided to tell for the purpose of showing off who you are. Lord, your glory that you reveal is that you change things. You take them from ordinary and you make them extraordinary. Lord, there may be people here today that don't feel like their life is very good. They may feel like it's dull and unimportant. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, go to them and, and, and show them that you are real, that you want to take them from that dull and unimportant life and to make them into somebody special. And that specialness is found in you. I just pray, Father, for us that are here that are in you, that are in Christ and that aren't living that special life. And I just pray, Lord, that we can reflect your glory by the way we live. I see things in your name. Amen.